All right, so uh, welcome everybody for the uh, serious seminar series and the talk today that uh, I'm going to mention is differential guarantees for the cryptographic systems. My name is Aniket Kate, I'm an assistant professor here at Purdy. Okay. Uh, so we use cryptography uh, in quite a lot of uh, different scenarios and I'll say that almost all of us have started to use now cryptography in some form or other. Uh, typical things that are getting used in cryptography even in our day to day life is encryption, most of our TLS, uh, most of our communication that we do with our banks or just even our email communication is now end-to-end -end encrypted between the server and your local machines. We use them for the signature to ensure the authenticity uh, that you're talking to right server and that you're getting the right messages and not people are not changing your message on the way. And then there are also interesting other things such as commitments and zero knowledge proof that are also started to get used in various other interesting scenarios. So as I already mentioned, SSL TLS is the certainly the most prominent form of the uh, cryptographic mechanism that we use and uh, on the regular basis. And so, do, so is the case with the password authentication or SSH that also most of you as a student must be using for your conversation. Some of you might be using even fancier tools such as PGP to make sure that your messages are signed or maybe Tor if you want to do some kind of anonymity or maybe some, some of you might be encrypting your, uh, your MacBooks where you're using FileVault or maybe there are some e-voting mechanisms that you use. So, and you, I'll certainly make a claim that we are going to see more and more use of cryptography and the, even now that we are doing that and we'll be doing even more of that in the future to come. So when we talk about cryptography or when we talk about the security, the first thing that we need to talk about uh, in the notion that is of interest to is the privacy here. And uh, when we talk about privacy, the first person that we have to consider is the adversary. Who is the adversary? What is the threat model against which we are working in? And the key thing there is again that adversaries come in different form and shape when we talk about it's come on internet. As I'm showing here, it can be just a friendly neighbor who is trying to snoop on what you're doing up to the uh, state level programs which are trying to find out uh, information at the mass level. So there are adversaries that can come at a different level. And then in most systems to actually quantify this adversary, we try to introduce the concept of auxiliary information. So by auxiliary information, I mean that information that adversaries can obtain about your communication, about what you're trying to do, how are you trying to do, when are you trying to do, some, uh, from some other medium, okay? So auxiliary information can be just some information that they know. It can be some metadata, as you remember, which is basically how, when, who is sending, and without knowing what's the data. So there is all sort of this auxiliary information. And uh, therefore, what cryptography, in cryptography, what we try to do is that given that adversary can be very strong and can have access to a lot of auxiliary information, we go for a really strong notion of security. Rather than we just say that adversary should not be able to know some information for the uh, message, we just say that he should not be know, not able to any, even single bit of information regarding your message or regarding your encrypted communication. And that's where the concept comes, which is known as indistinguishability. So what I mean by indistinguishability, that's, I thought I'll just show that with a, uh, with a, a more uh, diagram form, okay? So the typical way we define indistinguishability is we'll assume that we, uh, there are two machines, machine X0 and X1, okay? Which represent the, your algorithm, your uh, protocol that is performing, and there is an adversary, okay? And we'll assume that this adversary interact with one of these two machines, chosen uniformly at random, okay? One of the two machines. And it will try, it will look at these, uh, the, it, uh, through this interaction, it will try to determine whether it is interacting with machine zero or machine one, okay? And uh, then the idea is that when we say we have perfect indistinguishability, the best possible privacy, if adversary cannot distinguish between the two events, whether it is interacting with machine zero or whether it is interacting with machine one, okay? A uh, very simple way to consider that how these machines are related to cryptography, let's say basic encryption as a mechanism. So machine one will be using the exact same algorithm, but it will be encrypting message M0, or maybe just message zero, zero bit, okay? While machine one will be something again using the same algorithm, but encrypting the message one. And that's one way to distinguish between the two machines, okay? In principle, we also assume that adversary is the one who picked these two machines and given. So typical for a, a, a when we talk about the privacy guarantee, what we want is that adversary, although he provided the two machines, eventually when one of them is picked, 
uniformly at random, then he cannot distinguish which of the two is getting used. All right, and uh, the perfect indistinguishability, which typically we achieve with one-time pad, if you have already done some study in there, is uh, happens via when we say that the probability that the adversary interacting uh, with, let's say, machine uh, x0 and obtaining and providing an output, let's say that it's actually interacting with, uh, as if giving output one, uh, which uh, which interact, which means it's interacting with machine one, is equal to the probability that it outputs that the same value one when it is interacting with the machine x1. Okay, uh, but in many situations we cannot achieve this perfect guarantee, and what we settle with is known as a computational indistinguishability where we say that instead of these two probability being equal, we say that they are actually uh, almost equal and bounded by a small factor, which typically we know as delta, and this delta factor is negligibly small, very small, okay, exponentially small in, uh, the, fa uh, in, the, in, the, in the situation uh, which is associated with the security parameter. So, we define a security parameter and we expect that value to be in uh, these two probabilities to be not too far from each other and bounded by this small value delta. Okay? So, uh, this, is, this computational guarantee allows us to define uh, various different cryptographic primitives for starting from our standard encryption, public key encryption or in many others in our commitment and many other protocols. Now, moving slightly away from the cryptography, and now we talk about a, 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 a interesting problem regarding privacy, which is the privacy-preserving data analysis. Okay, and the examples there are like there are just lots of examples that we have to deal with of such things in our real world. For example, there are databases of health records, census data, web analytics, and in all these scenario, the statistical information from this database is collected and published online. Okay, and uh, uh, obviously, this statistical information may provide some kind of a, uh, some kind of information regarding individual entries in these databases. And when we try to achieve actually achieve the privacy-preserving data analysis, what we want to want to achieve is that although the info, uh, these statistics are released, this information is released, at the same time we uh, we still try to protect the privacy for the data mem uh, for the entries which are present in this particular database. And the question that we ask is that now this is again a basic privacy problem, and can we uh, use the same rigorous definitions like indistinguishability that we studied earlier to this data privacy problem? And answer turns out to be no, and we'll just understand what happened in this respect. The first thing that we'll have to understand here is that uh, that what do we mean by privacy in this data analysis scenario, these data release scenarios or statistical information release scenario? Okay. And uh, even in the database literature, even before we define cryptography formally in 1977, uh, Delinius actually provided the definition which has really good meaning, sem uh, good semantic guarantees. So, what we uh, what he say that anything that can be learned of, a, of an individual from a statistical database can also be learned by the adversary without having access to this database, this statistical information. So, Something you already know about this particular individual or this particular entry, okay, or this particular individual outside the without using the statistical information, then statistical information does not should not increase your information regarding this individual. Okay, uh, this guarantee, for example, uh, here the just to understand, your my uh, adversary will be somebody who's querier, so he is the one who is going to make the query obtain the statistical information and now use this information to find out more about an individual. Okay? An example that I am going on the next slide should make it more clear. Uh, the one thing that we have to understand why this is analogous to what we saw already in the indistinguishability. Right? So, in the cryptographic scenario, we know uh, this indistinguishability that I mentioned is known to be equivalent in several scenarios to what is known as semantic security. So, semantic security is a, a notion which says that anything that can be learned from the encrypt uh, that can be learned from an encrypted message, okay. Let's say you encrypt a message and you know any information about that message by uh, by looking at the ciphertext can also be learned even without having access to the ciphertext. Okay. So, let's say you know that the message is uh, message is either yes or no that information that, that auxiliary information that you already have about the message. Now, you get an encryption of this message, it should not increase your uh, information that you can obtain. 
with, uh, regarding the whether it is rough or no. So that's what we call as a semantic security. Okay, and uh, this this is the notion which is equivalent to the indistinguishability that we saw earlier. And basically, this uh, the the notion that is provided a delineus for the database release or release of the strategic information for the database has the equivalence to this notion. Uh, now, the, if just putting this in this in slightly different perspective, let's say what we are comparing this scenario is basically an adversary, which is an algorithm and auxiliary information, and we're comparing that with the ad same adversary and uh, with the, this auxiliary information and some statistical information regarding database. And we're comparing this. And what we want to say that the prior and the posterior view or the information that adversary can get of about an individual should not change much. So basically, we are comparing the left-hand side and the right-hand side, and there should not be a huge difference in the information that adversary can obtain. Okay? But uh, the key question that we want to ask is how much is too much, right? I mean, you should not know too much information. In the most ideal scenario, we want this information to be negligibly small, so that then, uh, which is very equivalent, which closely equivalent to the standard cryptographic setting. But uh, as it turns out, that won't be the scenario in database scenario, uh, database release, because this information is closely related to the amount of, uh, that that the statistical information should also provide some utility or some help so that you can understand or obtain some information from this answer to the query. So uh, the key thing is that the mechanism uh, that achieves cryptographic level of small negligible advantage to the adversary possibly cannot provide the useful information to the, uh, for the, uh, the answer to the query. So uh, just to give an example, uh, as it turns out, we can actually prove this impossibility that we cannot achieve the best, uh, the cryptographic privacy guarantees and some kind of utility from the database. Uh, and that can be shown by this very simple example. Okay, let's say I'm taking a, a contemporary example. And my example, let's say Russia knows as an auxiliary information that Donald Trump is 0.5 inches taller than an average uh, US person. Okay. And therefore, let's say somehow we find out, we do a computation and we obtain the average height of a US individual, adding this info answer that we obtained from this, this statistical answer that we obtained from the database and adding the information that Donald Trump is 0.5 inches taller, we immediately know the answer or the uh, height of Donald Trump. Okay, so this example just shows the difference between in the sense that what can be learned once we add this auxiliary information, which is basically difference between the height of Donald Trump and the average US per person. And this will immediately leaks, leads to the leaking the privacy for Donald Trump. Okay? So uh, that just shows that indeed it's a, uh, given the auxiliary information can immediately break into the privacy and uh, for the, any individual or any such using them, uh, in our case basically the example that we take the Donald Trump. Okay? Uh, the key interesting thing to remember, uh, see here is that this works even when the Donald Trump is not present in this database. Okay, let's say we are talking of that, let's say the Donald Trump is one inch taller than an average person, let's say from UK. And now in this database, he won't be present and still we'll be able to use this auxiliary information and this answer that we get from the statistical query to obtain information regarding him you know, or rather break his privacy. Okay, so, uh, that shows that there is certainly this auxiliary information that can play the role. So uh, that motivated, however, an interesting definition where that what if we uh, we add, we consider different privacy notion where basically we'll compare the two uh, two uh, privacy leakage whether uh, basically we compare the leakage what if the particular entry or individual is present in the database or whether they are not present in the database. And instead for our notion, what we are going to do is we compare these two notion, that probability that answer will be a particular value such that that particular entry is present in the database and probability of that will compare with the now the same database, but now this, this individual included. And we'll compare these two probabilities and if that difference is not uh, significant, then maybe we can actually, uh, we can actually make some meaningful guarantees regarding the privacy because uh, now looking at the output, we cannot be sure whether this particular individual is present in the database or not. And that leads to the 
a concept of differential privacy which would basically means that we these are the privatized or differential privatized database so that uh, the output for such database remain indistinguishable whether a particular person or whether a particular entry is present in the database or not present in the database. So let me try to show that with a uh, example here okay as I'm showing typical as with the standard uh, cryptographic systems it's a game between adversary and a challenger okay my challenge is on my left hand side and my adversary is on the right hand side okay and what happens typically as with our earlier example an adversary is going to pick two database or two tables which differ in let's say one row and uh, he's going to send these uh, pick those uh, these two tables and send them to the challenger now what challenger is going to do is that pick one of them okay and run uh, the algorithm this uh, their algorithm to obtain obtain the answers on top of that okay typically it will be randomized algorithm and obtain a result and now send this result back to the adversary now an adversary who has access to this answer should not be able to determine okay whether the table uh, the blue table is chosen or the green table is chosen which is just a single bit of indistinct information that it is not aware of okay and that's what the challenge that it has however the key thing to remember is that he instead here not only we we, we will have a, a delta factor which uh, which which provides a, uh, a distinction at the additive layer but on top of that in the differential privacy we will also have a, a multiplicative factor which I'm showing there with e raised to epsilon okay such that we which will add a quality uh, to this distinguishing so that an adversary providing a correct info a correct output an adversary which is which is providing an incorrect output they are not uh, when we compare them with each other they will be actually relation related with this equation where the left hand side is less than or equal to e to the epsilon which is the multiplicative factor multiplied with the second the right hand side probability with a small delta factor over there so it's interesting uh, this this uh, this makes us ask what does this multiplicative factor means okay so this uh, this is an interesting concept on its itself because uh, if you, these are the probabilities that we are comparing and now we are saying that uh, for simplicity i assume that this delta factor is zero okay this, that we typically expect that to be negligible but maybe we'll assume that that's zero and when we are comparing these two probability we are saying that the two probabilities now associated with each other uh, by this uh, by this multiplicative factor which indicates that there is although uh, one probability where the adversary do, uh, guessing correctly ca can be higher but it will be always bounded by a factor which is closely related to the second probability where he is going wrong in principle it means that he can never be sure because of this multiplicative factor he can never be sure that he the let's say what he has guessed is the correct answer there there is a, some some kind of a deniability which is always available to the challenger saying that no you are wrong with this particular probability which is bounded and provided by this e to the epsilon factor so basically when we talk about differential privacy one way to interpret that is that it provides you a deniability that indeed the what is output by the adversary is incorrect and that deniability is de determined this by this epsilon factor so that's typically the way we, it is uh, used and maybe i will say the differential privacy provides as the guarantees where uh, is rather than just completely giving up that there is a any kind of privacy hope which can which is possible uh, when we talk about the privacy preserving data analysis instead we at least get a way to achieve some kind of a privacy guarantee even in that scenario by introducing this multiplicative factor okay now uh, indeed an uh, interesting question can be is this data privacy uh, data or database uh, uh, database or data mining privacy or data release privacy is the only example where we can have a differential privacy kind of guarantee or are there some other scenarios where it can be also helpful and where we can use such a deniability notion to get some kind of a meaningful guarantee rather than just giving up on upon uh, giving up upon the hope to achieve some kind of a privacy and uh, as it turns out that this talk we we are going to see two interesting examples where we are able to use achieve the similar guarantees in the scenarios outside the data privacy scenario okay or uh, instead of there's also interesting way to put it is that where we can we 
use or abuse the differential privacy notion in suburb scenario and we are going to see two prominent examples from my earlier work where initially we use in the first example we use that for the cryptographic protocol with imperfect randomness where we are able to employ the similar concept uh, to achieve some privacy guarantee where otherwise we could not provide any privacy guarantee the standard notion and the second example that we are going to see is the anonymous uh, the privacy property for the anonymous communication networks such as store where we are again able to use the similar guarantees to achieve some kind of a privacy which otherwise was not possible so let me start with the uh, randomness example uh, i guess those of you who already taken some kind of a crypto lecture or even security lecture you know that to get uh, good privacy guarantees typically most cryptographic algorithm use some kind of randomness okay that uh, we certainly need that because when we talk about the secret key that secret key should have some entropy and the best way to do that is that secret key should be chosen uniformly at random or with some randomness guarantee okay and most primitives also uh, randomized and that's also required for notions such as the semantic security indistinguishability so given that we go uh, we use randomness quite a lot in all the cryptographic solutions or for that matter in most security solutions okay uh, the examples of encryption commitment zero knowledge proofs secret sharing are such all these scenarios we required such randomness in most scenarios even if you rem uh, if you heard me already what we expect this randomness to be is uniform okay so such that uh, it's a interval which goes from uh, some let's say value 0 to some n and one of these values is picked uniformly at random okay so that each of them have the probability to be get picked uh, which is uniform it's 1 divided by n basically that's what going to happen in this case uh just to give an example how typically this happen i talk i consider very simple primitive which is commitment protocol so a commitment protocol be it's a protocol between a prover and a verifier and in the, uh, it works in two phases in the first phase the commit phase the prover actually wants to commit to a particular message okay or a particular information so he takes this message and the randomness value r and basically it commits use a commitment algorithm to take this message and the random value r and obtain a commitment c and now this commitment is sent to the verifier or alice and the requirement that we have the privacy requirement that we have is that seeing this message uh, this uh, this committed commitment c the verifier should not have any information regarding the committed value m okay that's a guarantee that we want and uh, then what happens in the latter phase in the reveal phase the bob should will reveal the value of the message m that it has committed to and the randomness that is employed and now verifier can take this information and basically check whether this commit committed value uh, c uh is actually associated with the message m and the randomness r okay so uh and the key the and second property that we want typically from the commitment scheme is binding property where it should not be possible for this prover to change the message afterwards so once you once you commit to something you have to reveal only the same message m and not something else okay and as you can see here uh when we talk about uh, for our discussion we'll be focusing on the privacy property and that we can just explain with this simple example where we'll assume that let's say our adversary which will be the verifier over here is going to pick the messages so alice here picked two messages green message and the blue message okay send these those two message to the prover bob okay and bob now what it does is it picks one of these two messages it tosses the coin and picks one of these message uniformly at random and then uh picks a randomness a uniform from a uniformly random source and commit to these things to obtain this black box I'm, as i'm showing there and this the black box or the commitment value is sent back to the verifier or uh, verifier who is alice here and which will be also our adversary in the privacy game and now we compare the two probabilities as with the previous case we'll com we'll compare the probability that let's say the blue value is committed to okay so i'm talking about now the the thing on the left hand side where i'm saying that the blue value is committed in this black box and i'm saying that the probability that adversary is going to claim that uh, the value uh, is going to claim that indeed the blue value is what it is committed to and i'm comparing now the same output black and i'm saying that uh let's say now we are instead we have committed to the green value 
and now adversary is still claiming that the blue value is the one which is committed to. So, on the left hand side we have something which where adversary is correct and the right hand side adversary is wrong and we are comparing these two probabilities and we say that uh, this probability should be bounded. Okay? And uh, the key thing that we want is that this value here should be uh, this delta value there in this equation should be negligible so that he cannot find out uh, which of the two value is committed to. Okay, whether it is a green value or whether it is a blue value. Okay, and uh, that's the thing that we wanted. Uh, but the key thing that I like, I want you to focus on in this particular example is this source of randomness. So, for this protocol to work correctly, in most scenario, we uh, we need an access to the uniform random source so that this value r that is used for the commitment is the uh, uniform uh, is is chosen with a uniform random source or from a uniform random source. However, if you go into the uh, real world, uh, access to the uniform random source is a very difficult thing. Most of the things uh, that we deal with in the physical world have some kind of a causal relation. So, so one thing is related to other source, other thing. So maybe most of the source that we that we employ for obtaining uniform random may not be in, uh, random enough. Okay. So uh, real source are not perfect random source are, are not uniform random source, but they are somehow imperfect sources. And the interesting question to ask that let's say we replace this unif ideal uniform random source with this imperfect source, can we still achieve the guarantees that we want? Okay, and uh, that's we'll call as a concept of tolerating the imperfect sources. So we'll replace the so uh, the uh, randomness source that we employed, and we replace the uniform source in the ideal scenario with the non-uniform your non-uniform source, uh, and still uh, we ask the question. Is the protocol still remain secure or not? So uh, the one thing that typically happens is that rather than doing that, the uh, in most uh, there there is already significant literature and theory uh, which which comes under the term of randomness extractor, where given such a non-uniform source, we basically do uh, apply an algorithm on top of that so that we can convert that source to a uniform source and now use that. Okay, so the idea typically is that maybe rather than uh, when you want, let's say, k bits of uniform randomness, you extract k plus some x number of bits, uh, which are not uniformly random but almost, uh, but almost perfect, and you will basically have an algorithm which take given this k plus x bit to convert them to k bits so that those k bits are uniformly random. Yes. So I'm with. The difficulty of getting perfect randomness, you would have two different random generators and you'd switch between the two to, to provide the differential privacy you're talking about? So currently I'm just uh, currently I'm just talking about a source and that source is not perfect. It's not uniformly random, but instead it is uh, imperfect. It has some uh, as we are going to see later, it will have some minimum entropy or something like that. And I want to start from this one source and then apply an algorithm on top of that so that to convert that to a uniform source with maybe fewer bits. So I'll start with more bits and convert them to a fewer uniform bits. That's what I'm going for. Okay, it's possible for some sources, but there are some well uh, well studied sources in theory at least, such as Santa Vazirani source, for example, is a one example. Or there can be also block sources, which are known as where we know that we cannot always convert them. Given such a source, uh, uh, some k bits, we cannot convert them to uniform random source, except if you want, if you are willing to give up, if, we, if you are willing to go for the exponential blow up. What I mean by exponential blow up is that let's say I want k bit of uniform information, okay, or uniform uh, uh, randomness, and uh, they, it's always possible that you are given two raised to k bits of uh, no, imperfect source. You can convert them to the k bit of information. But let's say I want, don't want to do that. I want to do that maybe only polynomial number, take polynomial number of inputs and convert them to the some kind of uniform source. There are several examples which are known in the literature where you can't do that. Okay, exponential blow up is certain something that we can't uh, take care in most practical scenario. Okay, for example, if you want 128 bits, you cannot expect to have access to 2 raised to 128 bit of large, so just impossible to store even that piece of information. 
So uh, the well-known example for that is indeed this Santa Vazirani sources and uh, which are basically biased information. So uh, basically it's an example of a, uh, it's a generalization of bias coin. So uh, I mean the equation is there, but just to give the idea, in, in this case, basically you are going to keep on drawing an individual bit from such a source and the, previ uh, it's, uh, the, previ the next bit that you're going to draw will always conditionally based on the, all the previous bits that you have drawn, okay? That conditionality is defined by this parameter uh, rule that I'm showing there, okay? And uh, basically the idea is uh, why this source makes sense in the physical, let's say we use some physical source for measurements and in that uh, to obtain our randomness, then typically uh, the bit that we draw can be historically related to all the previous bits that are drawn from such a source. So given that, uh, given if we are provided such a biased source where the bit that, the new bit that we draw depends upon all the previous history, in such scenario we cannot take such a source and convert that to uniform random source, okay, except with the uh, exponential reduction. Uh, now given such SV source, people have already started to study their effect on the cryptographic system. Let's say we replace our standard uniform sources that we require for cryptography by such, uh, no, uh, such non-reducible, non-extractable sources such as Santavadini sources. So if we take, take the authentication or the signature primitives uh, or, or message authentication codes, uh, the primitives which require authenticity but not privacy guarantees, there as it turns out, uh, we can use this SV source and get almost equivalent guarantees as uniform source. So as I'm showing that in capsule, the Santa Vajrani sources are on the green part. That means we can use them for our cryptography protocols for our cryptography implementation and still get the guarantees that we want. However, when we want privacy guarantee, when we want indistinguishability kind of guarantee, as it turns out these SV sources, there are impossibilities result which are shown that uh, it's the, there is the probability that given any SV source, I will be able to find out a protocol or a situation where we, we, are, we cannot achieve the indistinguishability notion that we want for our messages. Okay, and it has been shown first time, one time pad, and later in a in a stock 2004 paper by Dodi Satar, it was shown that the same hold for encryption, zero knowledge proof, commitment, secret sharing, all these primitives. Basically, anywhere you have indistinguishability guarantee, we cannot use this SV source. And the reason they thought about it is because they they went for this in uh, basic standard cryptographic indistinguishability guarantee. So just to demonstrate what I mean by that is that let's take our this example regarding commitment and we expect that our adversary Alice, the verifier provided two messages. Now the Bob, the prover actually commit to these, one of these two messages, okay? And the key thing it uses, the random way that is used by the Bob is actually some, some Santa Vazirani source, let's say, which is a biased randomness. And then output, uh, output this black committed output is provided back to the verifier then we cannot ensure that there can be scenarios where the adversary can tell apart which of the two messages committed to by looking at this output or and performing performing some conversation okay and especially uh, we are talking about we are talking about the secure protocols here that means if we replace this act, this non uniform source by a good uniform randomness or a perfect randomness source then this protocol could have been uh, actually proven secure okay so we are talking about in this scenario where the randomness result into the lack of privacy. Uh, the question that we ask is that maybe, but this is happening only because we are considering go, going considering for the indistinguishability kind of a notion. What if we are more than happy to actually settle on a slightly weaker notion, which is similar to differential privacy, and uh, we can overcome this thing? And that's the question that we ask. I mean, is it all lost or it's not that all is not lost? Can we replace this perfect uh, or the computational indistinguishability definition that we use for the commitment and replace more like a differential privacy kind of a notion and still obtain some kind of a meaningful guarantee, okay? And the answer that we obtained from our, uh, the first result is indeed that's the situation. So uh, in, in what we basically try show is that um, as I'm showing in two example on the top, I'm showing our standard definition that we saw earlier. Let's say uh, there is a, it's a game between a challenger and an adversary where adversary has to determine whether it is communicating with machine zero or machine one 
x0 or x1 as I'm showing there. And in the top scenario, it's uh, this challenger is provided a source which is uniformly at random. Okay. And on the we say that in that case, if adversary gets a standard indistinguishability kind of guarantee, where when we are comparing these two probabilities, the probability that adversary is right with the probability that adversary is wrong, they are actually both uh, close to each other by a, a negligible fire factor delta. Okay. And now what I'm doing in the the things below on the second part is basically replacing this uniform source by a non-uniform source. Okay, by a source such as Santa Vazirani source. And in that case, what we do is that just with the, this difference, instead of saying that now the, there is no privacy, we give a, a bound on the privacy where these two probabilities are not only now related by this delta factor, but instead they are also related by an, uh, an, a multiplicative term which we represent that as a, in an exponential form like e to the epsilon. This can be also write as a 2 raised to epsilon, it does not matter that much. And in principle, I am so changing delta to the delta prime because we add a small factor which get added to this delta. But however, if the initial value was negligible, this delta prime also remains negligible. In principle, uh, what we obtain is that if we have uh, delta indistinguishability with the uniform source, then we obtain actually e comma e raised to delta uh, e raised to epsilon delta in differential indistinguishability for a a source which is basically in, uh, in let's say, uh, Santa, a particular Santa Vazirina source. Okay? And not only that, we can provide us a relationship between the, uh, the parameter for Santa Vazirina source as well as epsilon, and they are basically related to each other with a constant factor. Okay? Uh, so, the interesting thing to us is that we know how to go from one way to other. Given a, a given example which works in the standard uniform setting, we know how to convert that to the uh, differential indistinguishability setting. Uh, we use a different notion. We don't just want to use differential privacy as a term because it has its own meaning in the database uh, privacy community. So instead, that's the reason we use the term differential indistinguishability to show the relationship of this to the cryptographic uh, things. And the, the interesting question to ask that we can go from the top to the bottom, we can go from the uniform source to the non-uniform source. But can we always go from the differential indistinguishability kind of a notion to the indistinguishability notion? And the answer is no, answer is actually no, the counter direction does not always hold. Okay? And uh, the idea is that there can be scenarios where we get the differential indistinguishability, but we cannot convert that back to something which is indistinguishable in perfect sense, okay, and adult time indistinguishability as I mentioned, and uh, obviously the differential privacy is a common example for that. Where uh, in the database scenario, where we know that we just cannot achieve, even when we have access to the uniform source or whatever, we cannot achieve a, a indistinguishability kind of a guarantee, and we have already settled on there in something like differential privacy. So. Uh, what is the application of that to something like commitments? Okay, so most prominent example for commitments are electronic voting protocols. Okay, that's why they are used quite a lot. And then idea is that I voted on something, and my privacy depends upon that the commitment cannot be open. Okay, in the traditional setting, we'll just say if my source, uh, randomness source that I use on my laptop, my phone was not random enough, then don't expect any privacy. But instead, now we say that uh, rather than don't expect your privacy, you say that you will always have access to some kind of this uh, epsilon delta kind of a differential indistinguishability, which is much better than saying that you have no privacy. Okay? So we say that there are actually interesting privacy which, is, which can be defined. And uh, like with the differential privacy scenario, it will be deniability kind of scenario. So adversary may have more hunch that probably you voted to A than to B in the voting scenario. Uh, but you can always have dynasty that no, there is a probability that uh, adversary found, think it's A, but there is always some probability which exists with which you could have voted participant B. Okay? And uh, we can provide this guarantee with this epsilon delta notion for the indistinguishability, which otherwise was not possible with the standard indistinguishability notion. 
So uh, that's just one way to interpret. There are more interesting things that can happen based on the uh, cryptographic application. What kind of interpretation we can uh, perform, we can up, uh, obtain given this epsilon and delta value, and that's a certainly interesting thing to explore further. All right. So uh, now moving on, I want to give my uh, uh, in last couple of slides. I want to give uh, another example where we found this notion to be interesting and useful, and that example is anonymous communication networks. Okay. So uh, Tor is the most common uh, scenario where we try to where we try to use anonymity. Uh, by anonymity here, I mean that you are actually sending some message to a server, and you want to protect uh, from let's say your ISP or some servers on the internet whom you are communicating with. Okay, and in some scenario, you also want to protect that the server or the website that you are visiting to you that website should not know what is your IP address. Okay. And in standard anonymous communication scenario, the, the way we achieve that is we use pick some of the proxies, some of the routers on the internet. Okay, uh, in system like Tor, these are the nodes which are freely available, and, you, and uh, that you can obtain information regarding that from a, 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 a available uh, server. And you pick some of these nodes, typically three nodes that you pick, and you trans you send your communication this, through these uh, three nodes such that it's encrypted. It looks different in the different part of the network. And you use this uh, path to actually communicate with the server that you want to communicate with on the internet. So as I'm showing here, basically uh, in the figure, you can see that the messages looks different in a different part of the network. And uh, because it looks, let's say, greenish on the first part, and then with a different color in between, and so on, until it reaches the server. And uh, this is this is done with the encryption mechanisms, and uh, then as long as an adversary cannot see all these message paths and how they are flowing, he cannot determine which user is talking to which server. Okay? So that's the way typically Tor uh, provides some kind of anonymity. That's like one on very basic description of how it happens. Okay? Uh, but we still don't know very well what do you mean by anonymity here. Okay? We know this is what we want to achieve. but uh, quantifying this anonymity, similar to as we have done with the cryptography primitive, has been a uh, has been an open problem or challenge for several years. So what we did as our first effort is to actually try to quantify this privacy or the anonymity that we obtain from such anonymous communication network. And uh, the, as it realized, as we realized that uh, we can't just pick one notion. And try to define, try to achieve all these properties. Instead, we require multiple notions such as uh, sender and receiver anonymity, relationship anonymity, unlinkability to actually quantify or define these different guarantees that we achieve. Okay? This information depends upon what is your adversary. I mean, just to clarify, if my adversary is my ISP and not the end server that I'm going, that I'm then I want a receiver privacy in the sense that the ISP should not know which server I am visiting to. If my adversary is the final destination server where I want to visit it, let's say I want to go to google.com, but it should not know my IP address because they can track me, then in that case, I'm going for the sender anonymity such that the receiver or the last node should not have any idea who, uh, who is the sender for a particular message. Okay? So what we did is we, def we uh, defined these guarantees and uh, then tried to actually measure them in interesting scenarios. So uh, the first thing that we want to do is the modeling this anonymous communication. And uh, the key thing that will be required there is we, the anonymous communication, we have three key messages, okay? The sender of the message, the receiver of the message, and the message itself, okay? Uh, typically, for the simplicity of the analysis, we assume that the messages are something which are uh, which are co common across the different scenarios. They, they, are the no, they will not become the, uh, the key hurdle for defining the privacy notion, and that will become clear soon. And now, given such a scenario, the idea will be we'll take such a table as an input, and we'll run uh, this sender, receiver, and message table through the anonymous communication network. And an adversary will be somebody who will have access to the some links and the some nodes in the system. And you should not be able to actually get some kind of privacy notion the way we define it. Okay, so uh, another way to now look at this is that we'll this now I define similar to the how I define differential privacy. So adversaries will have 
two tables which are adjacent, which are close to each other in some form or other. What, uh, how they are adjacent to each other, I'll define uh, very soon. Now they are given to the challenger. Challenger, they to take these two tables, which are basically sender, receiver, and message, and send them through the anonymous communication channel. An adversary will see whatever it can see at the nodes that are under its control. And now looking at this information, it should be able to determine which of the two tables uh, are chosen by the challenger. Okay? And as it turns out, we observe that even here, we have the guarantees which is very similar that we have, we compare the adversary uh, determining that it has chosen correct table. I mean, on the left hand side, uh, the, the, the blue table is chosen or the blue set of senders and receivers is chosen. An adversary determines that it's actually blue and we compare that with the second scenario where the green one was chosen and adversary still says it's blue. And we say that they are now related with the epsilon delta v uh, in a si very similar way as we defined earlier. Now just to make it uh, clear what I mean by uh, the adjacent table here, so uh, let me take the simplest example which is sender anonymity. Okay? In the sender anonymity what we want is we want the privacy or the anonymity for the sender. So the way I define it in the most basic form is I'm going to take two tables chosen by the adversary. They are same except in one place, except in one location where the sender will be different. Okay? So for example, in the table that are shown that's shown here, on the the first two entries are exactly the same in both scenarios, okay, in the both tables. They only differ in the sender which which changes from the Alice to Bob when we go from the table one to table two. Okay? So in the blue table, the sender is Alice for the third message, and in the green table, the sender is Bob. Okay? As you can see, all other entries are exactly the same in both scenarios. Okay? I'm also keeping the same receiver in both scenarios that you can see there. So receiver is the same. Only thing that change, only single bit of information that change is that the, con, uh, the sender changes from Alice to Bob. Okay? And we say that we feed in these two tables to this system. Challenger picks one of them and execute, and an adversary should be able to determine whether the blue table is chosen or the green table is chosen. Okay. So uh, that given then the and given these two things, the idea is to compare, and we still want to make sure that the adversary cannot distinguish between these two scenarios. Okay. Uh, the way we define this thing uh, typically is we call this uh, alpha adjacency because. Uh, what may happen that these tables which are provided by the adversary may require some more fine tuning. So that in the most typical scenario, uh, what, what happens is there are two tables which are provided by the adversary. They go through this adjacency, uh, this alpha adjacency mechanism which uh, depend upon the sender anonymity or receiver anonymity or unlinkability or relationship anonymity, do the further processing on these two tables and then they are sent to the challenger and the challenger then basically execute or perf picks one of these two tables and perform the operations such that now looking at the information that is flowing through the network, adversary should not be able to determine which of the two is chosen. Okay? In the sender anonymity case that we saw, basically the, uh, the, this adjacency uh, algorithm doesn't need to do more. Okay? But uh, in the more complex anonymity notions, he, may, he has to do the processing. That's the reason we introduced that over here. Uh, but uh, the question that still remains to be that why we have this requirement of uh, multiplicative factor or this epsilon factor, why can't only we do with this with the standard delta uh, notion? And to un make it understand, let me just give an example, uh, kind of why we see this uh, multiplicative factor here. Okay, let's say uh, uh, let's say typically an adversary has an auxiliary information that uh, the two users, Alice and Bob. Okay. And let's say Bob prefers green nodes. Let's say green node shows uh, US. And let's say uh, pink node shows, uh, or deter they are nodes from Europe. Okay? And uh, the idea is that typically Bob prefers the nodes in US uh, for its communication, while Alice prefers the nodes in Europe. And that's typically happen in many of these node selection strategy that maybe for the efficiency purpose, uh, you assume that let's say Bob is in US, so he's going to pick the nodes in US so that his communication will flow fast. While Alice on the other hand is in Europe, so she'll pick the nodes which are go through Europe so, they, so that her communication uh, remains uh, fast. Okay? And let's say adversary has this access to information, but adversary doesn't know which of to have sent the message. But let's say 
uh, it sees now a message that is flowing through let's say pink node okay and adversary has access to one pink node and one green node and it sees that the pink node that is under adversary communication see a message going through it then based on the chances that uh, the uh, the adverse uh, the bob is let's say going to pick the green node versus pink node given given this probability there'll be high chance that uh, when when it sees the uh, see when see the message going through a pink node typically it's going from alice okay and given this guarantee there'll be adversary will know that with higher probability the message is coming from alice but not from bob but it can never be sure because typically in all the scenario we have a probability that let's say 75% of chance that bob is always going to pick the nodes the green side but there is a 25% chance that bob is also going to pick some of the pink nodes and let's say i'm going to put the similar probability for alice who's going to pick the pink nodes with 75% chance and 20 with 25% chance she is going to pick the green nodes now given this guarantee adversary will once you see a message on a pink node it's know that most probably it's coming from alice but there is still always some probability that's coming from bob and given such a probability guarantee of the picking nodes which is employed in most of this node selecting or path selecting strategy as it says in uh, onion routing literature there remains some some deniability which is available to the alice and bob in our example so that uh, they can always deny that they actually uh, they are not the one who has sent this message and this deniability property is exactly capturable in the multiplicative factor as uh, as we saw earlier and indeed that provides an another example for us where we can actually employ this uh, this multiplicative factor this differential kind of a guarantee to achieve some kind of a privacy notion okay so uh, as i mentioned this how uh, this events although then adversary is node sees that the message is flowing through a pink node is not always a distinguishing event okay it but it still has some information and this information is captured by the differential guarantee which provides us another information uh so those are the two uh, example that i wanted to give and uh with that i'm going to end my talk uh, giving that indeed i'll say not always uh, there are scenarios where we cannot op we obtain the best uh, possible guarantee for the privacy which is indistinguishability but we may have to settle on something weaker uh, in terms of the differential guarantees and there are scenarios naturally existing where we can uh, use uh, obtain such guarantees uh, this this study started in the in the form of differential privacy for database release but uh, in this talk i showed two examples one in the cryptography itself and the second for the anonymous communication where indeed we obtain similar guarantees are naturally okay thanks a lot